a struggle for identity. And of course, there's Eleanor. Eleanor is Nick's mom. On the one hand, she is the tiger mom, a bit of a bully, actually. But on the other hand, you find out she is the never feels like she's good enough daughter-in-law. She doesn't know who she is. And so I think that part of the magic of this movie is that the characters are so easily relatable, and it's not just only if you're yellow, all right? It's because it raises, I think, raises universal questions that we all have. Who am I? Who are you? I mean, do you know who you are and what defines you? Do you know who defines you? Is it your family? Is it your achievements? Or your possessions? Or is it how others see you? Are those things the things that define you? But who are you underneath all that? Well, Psalm 139 actually answers that question, the who am I question. And its answers are kind of surprising because it's different to how we would answer it. But I reckon its answers are so much more satisfying than the typical answers we come up with. See, I think who am I is best answered not by looking inside me or by looking around me. Who am I is best answered by looking above me, above you, to God, your maker. If you're a follower of Jesus, who you are, this psalm will tell you, is that you are someone known by God. You are known by God and loved by God. I'm going to unpack that from this. I think it's one of the most beautiful psalms. So let's have a look. Let me pray, and then we'll dip into it. Let's pray. Father, as we open this wonderful word from Psalm 139, help us to know what it is to be known by you, that we may anchor our identity in who you say we are and the fact that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got a couple of points in your outlines. Uh, We want to start with this psalm by noticing it tells us who wrote it, all right? So you see the italic bit, the little print under Psalm 139 in your Bibles. It says, for the director of music of David, a psalm. It reminds us it's a song, but most importantly, it's by King David. That's who the David is. Now, who's David? David was the king of ancient Israel. He also wrote half, about half of the 150 psalms, which are songs, in this, what I used to, what I called ancient Israel's playlist, okay? So this was their big playlist, and 150 of them, he wrote just under half of them. And that makes sense when you read 139, this psalm, because you'll notice the intimate language seems to come from someone who really knew God and loved God. And that's David. If you want to read more about David, pick up um, 1 and 2 Samuel in the Bibles, as well as a lot of these psalms. So it's by King David. Now, what's the structure of this psalm? Um, if you remember doing high school poems, so some of you are like, I don't want to remember, but if you enjoyed high school English, I did. Um, you'll know that um, in, in poems, it's not called paragraphs, it's called what? Stanzas, that's right. So this poem, this song has four stanzas of six verses each. It's a very regular sort of psalm. So that's the structure. What is the big idea? Well, the big idea is that you, I, David, is known by God. 
known by God. You know that's a big idea because it says it in verse 1 at the beginning and verse 23 towards the end. So verse 1, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. Skip down to 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Right? When it's at the beginning of end, you'll know that this has to be the key idea. Now, each stanza, as I said, of six verses will flow from that, will tell us a little bit about how God knows us or what's he like as he knows us. So let's go point 1a. I'm going to read again the first stanza, verses 1 to 6. And firstly, we're going to look at the all-knowing God. So verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's beautiful, isn't it? Um, God's knowledge here is macro, big picture, and micro details. There are four different verbs of knowing. The first is the general word, know, right? Verse 2, verse 4, it's macro, God knows us. But then you've got three others in the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. There's three others. And if you compare different English translations, you'll realize they're translated sort of differently in different translations. So they can be very, these other three verbs are variously translated as discern or perceive or even measure. Or there's the sifting idea is another translation, more literally, sift, God sifts us like he does wheat. He's familiar with us, okay? All of those different ones kind of get into the micro. No is general, macro. Discern, perceive, measure up, sift, familiar, micro. But you also see what God, what God knows of us is both macro and micro too. So firstly, verse 2, the beginning, he knows when we sit and when we rise. He knows our actions, Right? He knows our actions. But then the second half of verse 2, he knows our thoughts. Also what we're thinking. And by the way, right at the end, you remember? Verse 23, he says, search me and know my anxious thoughts. That's a great comfort, just as an aside, if anxiety is something you struggle with. God knows. He knows every anxiety, every thought. So he knows our actions, he knows our thoughts. He also knows our plans. He knows my going out and my lying down. That's what it means, my plans. Before you even made plans for today, he knew it. And then verse 4, your words as well. Right? Even before you utter them, God knew completely what you're going to say. He knows macro and micro. Um, think about it like this. What kind of knowledge of a company does a shareholder have versus an auditor? Right? Those of you who do audits. Yes, there's a lot of you, I know. A shareholder will generally know the bigger picture, right? They'll study the prospectus of the company. They can see the macro stuff. They'll see its trends, its shares. They'll invest in it based on that. An auditor knows every transaction, at least in a given financial year. Knows the micro, the details. God knows you both ways. The macro, the micro, the big picture, and the details. Which is why you'll see in verse 6, David is wonderstruck. I mean, how could you not be wonderstruck? But also, 
the feeling you get when someone knows you like this is a little bit trapped almost. I mean, like, you know, it's a little bit inescapable. Verse 5, he feels hemmed in, or another translation, he feels encircled by this kind of knowledge. Which leads us, of course, to stanza number 2, and just how inescapable God's presence is. So let me read the next stanza, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is a poetic way of saying what this old song by Sting and the Police said, if you know your karaoke, right? I'll be watching you. Right? Everywhere you... Da, 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 da. Yeah. Anyway, I think it was remade a few years ago, but that was old too. That was 20 years ago as well. Okay. God is everywhere. You cannot escape Him. Um, you see the extremes. Verse 8, it's up heaven, down depths. It's east and west. The east is the dawn, the, the wings of the dawn. The west, far side of the sea. Because for Israel, the sea was to their west, the Mediterranean. So you got up, down, east, west. God is also present, you see, in life and even in death. Even death can't make you escape God. Verse 8, the depths, literally the word is Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the underworld where dead people go. Even if you're in the depths, you cannot escape God. Our verses 11 to 12, the darkness, I think there is also perhaps a, a metaphor, an image of death as well. Basically, there's nowhere you can go that God cannot reach you, hold you, find you, be present. Now, in the earlier 20th century, atheism began to pick up speed. Right, in the late 19th century, there were a few more people like Nietzsche, if you know your philosophy, who were atheists. But really, it was in the 20th century that it began to pick up speed in the West. And atheists thought that by the time we had the technology to go up into space, the heavens, and see that God is not there. Because the ancients thought that when you went up to the sky, it was where God is. Well, you know, we had the technology to see into... Now, if we could actually get there, people would definitely stop believing in God. Get to space, God is in there. Where is God? Obviously, there is no God. But do you know what happened? When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the first two people to step on the moon, when they were the first to walk on the moon, they didn't stop believing in God. Quite the opposite. They marveled at God's creation because they knew that even from space, we were still in the creation and God was there. In fact, Buzz Aldrin, committed Christian elder of his church, celebrated communion on the moon. The first food and drink to be eaten and drank on the moon was communion. Most people don't know about this. You can't escape God. Now let's take a step back for a moment and let's think about the first people who used this psalm as part of their playlist, as their worship. Israel, ancient Israel. What comfort would this have been for ancient Israel if you... Don't remember, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you an outline of how the, the Psalms got put together and collected. Well, this collection, this playlist was collected after, just after, 
Israel had gone into exile and lost everything and just returned, but they came back to basically nothing. So you imagine that. Israel are feeling abandoned by God. They're surrounded by foreign nations. Their temple was in ruins or just being rebuilt, and it was tiny compared to the old one. Many of their people were still scattered. But this psalm that they sang reminded them collectively that no matter where they went, God would find them. God would regather them because God knows them and there is no place they can go to escape his love for them. Imagine how comforting it would have been for them to sing David's words. God is all present in his knowledge of us. Next point. Look at verse 13, stanza 3. Let's read. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Um, I don't know if you noticed it. There's, I don't know much about this because I don't ever knit and sew and weave. I can't even knit, I mean, sew a button together. That's me. But there's a lot of weaving and sewing imagery. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you'll get this, okay? God is the master craftsman, but he's, there's, there's weaving and sewing, that kind of image. Wo- weaving, woven is the word there, right? Knitting details into every single person he knows. Um, I saw this um, pop up on my Facebook feed. I want to show you. The picture on the right, and you science people, you'll get excited about this. Again, that's not me. I don't weave. I don't do science. Anyway, um, that is a computer-enhanced cross-sectional view of DNA. And the left picture is the stained glass window from one of the Westminster Cathedral windows. That's God. Your DNA seen from the cross-sectional down the axis view looks like that on the right. And the cathedral window, which I think in some ways that kind of symmetry, we image, we mirror God's amazing creative work. Every single strand of DNA master crafted by God, the master weaver. You'll also notice Um, This talks about it's all of life, right at the beginning of life to the end of life, from the womb to the tomb. So you've got beginning of life. You've got conception to delivery. When you're just a collection of unformed cells in the womb, God knew you. All the way to delivery. Um, Verse 18, that last sentence in this stanza, when I awake, I am still with you. It's probably better translated as when I awoke, I was still with you. Awoke there might be talking about when you actually are born, right? When you take your first breath, make your first cry, look into the world. Basically from conception to delivery to when you finally wake up as a new human being, God was with you. You were with God. So it's the beginning of life. It's also the end of life, you see. Verse 16, all the days ordained for me already written. God has authored all of our lives. 
even before we were born. Which means there are no accidents, there are no coincidences in any of your life or mine. Let's just stop and think for a moment. So far we've seen Psalm 139 paint this picture of God, right? What is it like to be known by God, the all-present God, the God who is part of all of your life and knows every part of it from womb to tomb? I wonder how that makes you feel. Is anyone just a little bit terrified by this? This picture of how God knows us? Because imagine for a moment, imagine if these things that are said of God was true of our government. Right? There's some countries where it's a little bit like that. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? If your government knew you like Psalm 139 says God knows us. A little bit terrifying. But you know what? As you read the psalm, you'll know that is not the vibe, the feeling of the psalm. I mean, it's actually instead a a tremendous source of comfort. David is in wonder. He's in praise. I mean, just here in stanza 3, verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Any sense of fear is an awestruck fear. It's a wonderful fear. Verse 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. This is not from someone who's afraid of God. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why is it not terrifying for God to know us like that? Like if your government knew you like that, that would be scary. Why is it not terrifying? Well, it's because this kind of knowing is not just macro, it's not just micro, it's not just everywhere, it's not just all of life. It's also, it's really important, it's a personal knowing. You got that? Personal knowing. See, when the Bible talks about knowledge, knowing, it's a personal, relational idea. It's not just knowing about. I used the auditor idea before. An auditor knows about a company and its transactions in the last financial year. A biologist knows about what it's like, right, what what happens, sorry, to an embryo. They could tell you all about it. The pre-birth, the cell division, the stuff that I don't even know how to talk about. They know that stuff, but they know about it. This isn't the primary way knowing is talked about here, knowing about. Guess what? God's knowing of us is personal. It's how a father knows a child. It's how a wife knows her husband. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. And you see, that's why it's not terrifying. Because God's personal knowledge of us is a loving knowledge. That's the key. He not only knows us fully, He loves us fully. Now, you take those two things, have a think about it. I think it was Pastor Tim Keller who really brought this home. He says, if you are known but not loved, imagine if someone knew you like a government knew you, but you're not loved. That's actually terrifying, right? But what if you flip that around? What if you were loved but not really known? Well, if you're loved and not really known, that would be quite insecure because they don't really know you. So you'd always be thinking, if they really knew me, would they still really love me? So that's terrifying in a different way. But what if you were fully known and fully loved? If someone knew you completely and yet loved you completely, well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Isn't that what we're all longing for? That someone would know you fully and yet still love you and never change their love for you in spite of the fact that they know you. See, God knows you and loves you from the moment 
you were a bunch of cells until the moment you take your last breath and beyond. Um, friends, if you are here and you've never really felt belonging, especially if you've never really felt belonging in, in the family that you've come from, you wouldn't say you were a close family. In fact, you might really feel like your family is... You might even have been told or felt like you were an accident. Well, guess what? You're not. Because the one family that matters, God's fatherhood of you, He says, I know you and I loved you from even before you were a forethought in your parents' mind, even if your parents didn't even want you. God did. And also, if you're here, and there's many here, including our family, who've lost babies, miscarriage, right, before birth, or even have lost children after birth. Guess what? What a wonderful psalm to know. God knows them. God loves them. God has got them. And you will see them again. And this is one of those passages that reminds us that the Bible tells us that life begins at conception. Right, the moment the sperm and the egg come together, a new life is formed, which actually does mean that abortion, when not required by medical necessity, you know, mum's life is in danger, all that kind of stuff, that abortion, when medical necessity isn't there, well, the Bible does say that kind of abortion is sin. Now, I say that really carefully because I know that it's painful for people here some people, you might have had abortion. But I do need to say as gently as I possibly can, and yet as clearly as I need to, that our world and that so-called pro-choice logic is the opposite of the gospel. You see, the gospel, the good news of Christianity is, I sacrifice myself for your sake, isn't it? The pro-choice logic, abortion when it's not medically required, is the opposite of that. Gospel, I sacrifice myself for your sake, that kind of abortion thinking is, I sacrifice you, the unborn, for my sake. It's opposite of gospel. Now, it may be that you here carry the shame and guilt of that. That's something that you've done. You've aborted unborn life, not because you needed to medically, but because it was just too hard in other ways, too inconvenient, too shameful. Well, I want to say to you, God offers you healing. He really does. But like any sin that we, we need to repent of, we need to not hide it, we actually need to come face to face with it. We need to confess it, firstly with God, but also help to talk about it with someone you trust. If you can't think of anyone else, come talk to myself or Karen. And then receive God's grace of forgiveness in Jesus. It is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Do you know what I mean? So come and talk to us, come and talk to God, have a think about that. But it does need to be said because life begins at conception. And this is one of the parts of the Bible that says it. 
Let's go to the last thing. What does it mean to be known by God? Well, God is all righteous. Look at verse 19. Last stanza. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, let's admit these verses are an odd fit, right? Imagine a song starts off beautifully, melodic piano bit, and then suddenly turns into death metal. That's kind of this bit, all right? It's like, what's going on? Now, it does seem an odd fit, but then let's remember that one of the big themes of this playlist called the Psalms, and if you're just in doubt, the first Psalm, Psalm 1, deals with righteousness and wickedness. It tells us that God cares about righteousness and justice, and He is judge. It's all throughout the Psalms. Lots of these beautiful, you know, melodic Psalms actually do end up with bits about evil and asking God to punish the wicked. Um, now, I don't have time to deal with that because that is a real theme in the Psalms, but you guys wouldn't have heard it, but three weeks ago, um, one of our um, students, uh, John Walsh, he preached a sermon in Bankstown. We had a missionary preacher, so we didn't hear it. But online, if you look for Psalm 79 that John Walsh preached from three weeks ago, he deals with a psalm that talks about calling on God to judge the wicked. I'd recommend you listen to that psalm because I thought he dealt with it really well. Here I will just say this. This is probably how I try to make sense of how it fits in. See, when you are in a relationship with God, whose thoughts and ways are precious to you. Remember, the psalmist says, how precious are your thoughts to me? Verse 17. Well, when you're in a relationship with a God like that, you will love what He loves, you will hate what He hates. And God is righteous. So maybe that's a way of making sense of these verses. But I also think the last two verses are key. Verses 23 and 24. Remember, the psalmist is asking God to search out his own heart, to see if there's anything in his own heart that is offensive, that is wicked. So if you like to think about it, this hatred for the wicked people outside in verses 19 to 22 is actually flowing out from a hatred of wickedness in his own heart in verses 23 and 24. Do you see what I mean? So maybe that's one way of seeing it. All right, that's the psalm. Now, I want to go to point two now and, and basically think about how it applies to us because here's the thing. All those things true of God's knowledge of us, this wonderful psalm about how God knows us, loves us, all present, all of life, all righteous, guess what? When you come to the New Testament, it gets even sharper in focus. If you'd like to think of it, the parallel for Psalm 139 in the New Testament is Romans chapter 8. So we're actually going to turn to it now. Romans chapter 8, uh, this is worth turning to because we'll finish on this in your Bibles or if you have a phone app. Um, anyway, if you're looking for the page number of the Blue Pew Bibles, it's 917, 917, the back half of Romans 8. And I want to read to you Romans 8, the back half from verse 26 in sections. And you'll actually see every point that we've looked at in Psalm 139 will be picked up in some way. I'm going to start from verse 26. Verse 26, Romans 8. Page 917 in the Blue Bibles. Verse 26. Look what it says there. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And notice this. He who searches our hearts, does that sound familiar? Knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. God is all-knowing. God's Holy Spirit, given to those who belong to Jesus, knows you and searches you even more intimately. Because He's in you. And He enables you to pray, says Romans 8. Great news. Let's read on. Next section, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. God knows all of your life. And he's planned it out. That's what we saw in Psalm 139, right? Not one detail of your life is left to chance. Everything works for your good, which is to become like Jesus. See, when you're saved, God saved you even before you were born. He chose you. He predestined you. And he also sets off a chain of events that starts with choosing you all the way to end with glorifying you all of your life. God has got you. What about the next bit? Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, that's Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. These verses, especially 33 and 34, remind us that God is still the all-righteous judge. But guess what? You don't have to fear His righteousness, even though none of us are righteous, according to God. Verse 33, why? Because God justifies the wicked. He justifies us through Jesus' death. That's what justify means. He makes the guilty innocent. How? Jesus dies in the place of the guilty. He makes the wicked righteous by dying in our place on the cross. So verse 34, there is no condemnation you should fear. God is all righteous, but he makes you righteous in Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope you know it's no accident that you're here or that you've been coming. Maybe it's too fresh. How did you get here? How did you find out who invited you? None of that's an accident. What circumstances in your life have led you to even take up an invitation? There are no accidents either, even though I know often they're difficult circumstances in life. It's no accident. God has been orchestrating it all to give you a chance, perhaps today is your chance, or today is your chance, but maybe today you want to take up your chance to trust in Jesus, be justified, and have a God like that know and love you. The last few verses, let's go. The best verses of Romans 8, verse 35. Let's pick up again. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What have we seen so far, Romans 8? All knowing, all of life, all righteous. Let's get to the best part. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter where you are, no matter how you are, from the cradle to the grave, from earth to heaven, from east to west, nothing can separate you, it says, from God's all-present love for you in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that just capture Psalm 139, but brings it into sharper focus? So let me close by saying this. If you are here and you are in the depths of despair or grief or anxiety or depression and you feel abandoned, you feel alone and the darkness is choking you and it's all around you, God is there. You may not feel him, but he is there. He is right there because he knows you, because he loves you, because he will never, ever leave you. So who am I? Who are you? I'm known by God. You're known by God. Fully known. Fully loved. And nothing beats that. Let's pray. Father, as we um, come to grips with this incredible psalm, and then to read the words of you knowing us in Christ through that incredible chapter in Romans. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your Spirit, every single person would come to appreciate so deeply, so deeply, how much they are known and loved by you.